it's two Taliban guys just behind the wall and we're doing scissor paper stones me and my friends to see who are going to be the two <laughs> that go and charge these guys down and yeah that's probably the only time I've actually felt sick in war hey everyone welcome to this world is mental a health-based podcast focused on mental health issues I'm your host Robbie Thompson and I'm joined by my co-host Francesca Stutley how you doing, Fran? I'm good, thank you. Just getting everything ready for the next detox. So all is good, all is on target. So yes. Outstanding. No, uh, this week we have an amazing guest. Uh, it seems like he's done everything. He's Royal Marine, um, you know, started his own multi-million dollar company and now he's really turned to like charitable work. So uh, no, let's get him on here. Uh, Richard McHenry. Mental stories and mental outcomes. You're listening to This World is Mental with your hosts, Robbie Thompson and Francesca Stutley. Hey, Richard, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me along. Welcome, welcome. So my first question is, what is PTSD? Oof, PTSD, yes, it's a tricky one because before 2011, everyone just associated PTSD with what police officers could get or what you would get after serving in the Falklands War. But they sort of narrowed it down and they called it a new thing. It's called combat stress. So they were releasing it saying, you haven't got the full symptoms of PTSD, uh, but most military people have been to Afghanistan and have the symptoms of combat stress. So it's like certain stresses that you've got from going to war, like what we called in the Second World War, shell shock. So the whole diagnosis is with like Marines or any military people is, right, do you have PTSD? And if it's a version of PTSD, combat stress will fit under that. So PTSD is basically just a mental health disorder, really. Um, that can send you, you either have people that have nightmares, you have people that don't. So I like had no nightmares at all with my PTSD. I was completely clean from nightmares. I was scared of different things. But PTSD, and it can affect anyone, can affect people in the fire brigade, ambulance services. But what they're doing with the military people is mostly putting it into a combat stress because they're finding different scenarios are triggering different things yes so i guess that ptsd as well can be from a trauma yes whatever trauma divorce or seeing something or it can be it can be played out in different ways well even children get ptsd at school nowadays so that's a big loads of cases in the uk with ptsd and kids yeah so where where did yours um start richard um so i left the marines in 2008 came back to spain uh, played some football, tried to make some money here in Spain, but obviously that was the financial crisis. So I went over to Africa in 2010. So it was about yeah, early 2010 it kicked in and I was in Oman. And there were some issues with the body. I didn't know what was going on. So I got rushed to hospital. Didn't know if I had a hiatus hernia or whatever. They said, no, it's nothing. So they flew me back to the UK. I had loads of tests and they were like, no, it's nothing. They said, just go and see a psychologist. So I went to see a psychologist, and this was all within one month of that happening in Oman. And the psychologist was like, yes, your body is completely fine. It's more of a psychological issue here. It's all like your reactors from your brain and everything, all the messages are messed up. And then that's when they put me on the whole combat stress route to actually see, right, what, what's happened here? What, what have you done in your career? What can be linking this? What can be triggering this? So was it a delayed reaction from when you were in the Marines? 100%, yeah, yeah, it's and definitely a delayed you? reaction. Where were you in the Marines? Oh, in Afghanistan. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. no. So I was over in Afghanistan. Um, I was in the Marines for about five years. And we just managed to get one tour of Afghanistan. And I left, i say, in, what was the year? Yeah, 2008. I know uh, from reading parts of your book, I mean, it wasn't just a walk in the park, the Afghanistan stuff. It sounded yeah. like... Yeah. I think the book opens with a very graphic scene of... Um, 
you uh yeah I'll, I'll let you tell it yeah i think well, i'm guessing the scene is is that the one where we charge in the wall yeah there's two taliban guys just behind the wall and we're doing scissor paper stones me and my friends to see who are going to be the two <laughs> that go and charge these guys down and yeah that's probably the only time i've actually felt sick in war when i lost scissor paper stones mm-hmm. there to go and charge across this open field it was about uh, 75 meters and i just remember just letting go and just running um we had support cover but it wasn't enough those guys were just trying to kill us as we were running across this open field yeah I remember it vividly I can't even imagine (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is when you're doing that you're a kid though remember when I was there I was 20 so and this is the whole PTSD thing I say and the psychologist have always said to me you've just absorbed it because you've been in the Marines since I was 17 Mm. so you've just absorbed everything that's been going happening the camaraderie all of that team building stuff you do with the Marines and then Afghanistan as well and then it's just hit you slightly later in life and they do say it can hit you anyway up to 15 years after yeah so it's it's not something that happens like straight away so mine was as I say a good few years later and um, you know one thing from I have a bit of that uh, going on in my background with the firefighting um, and I think it I can relate it to how people process like the you know mourning process of like death and and those types of things Um, it can just sneak up on you uh, at yeah. any moment. Now, what I've found in my life, um, because I do suffer with PTSD as well, um, is every decision I make, it can it can come in to play. It can be, you know, whether doubt or anything like that. I know you've started a, you know, big security company. Did your PTSD affect your decision making at any point? Um, did you ever have doubt? No, well, this, the only thing affected the security company. So I'll, I'll go back actually a few months before setting up the security company. So I was in Spain, really. I was locked in my house for close to a year mm. um, here in Spain. My mum had cancer. My dad had to quit his job to go and help the mum. So we had no money. So I had to go doing boot sales over in Vergel here in Spain just to get enough money to pay for our food. And somebody said, look, Rich, you can't go back to Africa now because you've, you've got issues. Um, we wouldn't get insurance for you to go and hold a weapon. But there's a company in London that could take you. So they said, come over to London, you can have this job. I was like, well, I can't even fly. I'm scared of everything, outdoors, flying. Mm-hmm. So my best friend actually flew over from Australia just to fly me over to London. But we knew my mum was going to die within three months. So it was a tricky situation because I had to say bye to my mum while she was alive, knowing that she would be dead just for money. So the reason I'm going there was for money. So I went over there and I was getting bullied in the company for three months because I was so young and you had all these senior officers dealing with parliament and everything. And I had this knowledge that they didn't have and they just didn't like it. I had certain knowledge of Nigeria, Somalia, Yemen, Djibouti, these random countries where there's some conflicts. Mm. So I basically, after three months, just stood up and said, look, guys, I've got these contacts. Uh, I can go and settle for my own, but I need £60,000 for the insurance to be able to set this up. And I know I can get clients because nobody can sell what I can sell in these countries, the security. I know off the back of my hand. Mm. So, yeah, five guys in the company stood up and said, we'll put the money in for you. And then that was three years later, we sold it for $21 million. And that was it. So, But during that time, the PTSD only came at the early stages. I had it still. But as I was making money and, and every penny that came out invested in property, something that would give me an income that I could always fall back on so I right. could never be poor again and have to leave or see my family leave someone who's dying while they're still alive. Mm. So, so yeah, I used to actually have to drive all over Europe. We drove everywhere because I couldn't fly. So we drove to meetings. Oh, everywhere. We were in Germany every second week, down to Switzerland, to Italy, until a client from Dubai actually called us up and said, we want to give you all our contracts. It's worth half a million dollars. Do you want it? Come over and meet us in three days. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to fly. <laughs> so I called my friends in again and they all took me over. And then that sort of broke the ice. I still can't fly on my own. I have to fly with someone. But yeah. 
So um, what support did you get? Or what, how were you treating your PTSD at that point? What were you doing? And, 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 and I'm guessing that it played out as anxiety and fear. Scared of things. Yes, it was anxiety, yeah. fear, panic attacks. Yeah. Um, that was, but the key thing was just being scared. So even within myself, I was scared just to chat to people, going to big groups. I wouldn't even go and play football with my friends. Um, so I was pretty much locked in the house until it was like a time where we had no money and I had to go do something unless we wanted the markets. So, but yeah, so that's what it basically was. Were was you just, taking any medication? Did you get any therapy? So I've probably been through close to 11 psychologists mm -hmm. and they all started with med medication, medication. And then I went to a hypnotherapist and it sort of changed the way of looking at it and seeing myself as a better person and by doing it naturally. So I sort of went down the natural route with the whole CBD and then a bicarb, lemon juice every morning, freshly squeezed lemon juice. So I've tried to do everything naturally. Some of them may be placebo effects, but they work for me and I have them in my daily routine. Yeah. And sport, sport has been the key thing for me. Every day, even though I'll push meetings aside, whatever more important for me is once I've done my school runs, I'll go to the swimming pool, I'll go for a run, I'll go and do CrossFit, I'll go for a trail run or a cycle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love doing multi-sport events. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, um, you know, my past, it was uh, pay yourself before you you pay them kind of yes. thing. So I would wake up super early doing hikes and all that. Um, didn't think of it at the time, but it really helped me process um, the anxiety, built my confidence up a bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I can totally relate to that. It's amazing. Um, I know you're a really active guy, do a lot of running, trail running, all that Um what kind of tips do you have for people that are suffering from PTSD um, and how they can integrate sport into their life to kind of... Yeah, the first thing I noticed when I first started, the first thing is I went, I said, right, I'm just going to go for a one-kilometer run. You know, I'd been locked away for nearly a year, hardly left the house. So it was that one-kilometer run, and it's probably the hardest run I've ever done because I was stopping every 100 meters just because I wasn't fit enough, but scared because the body was doing all these sensations like, oh, is this a heart attack? Is this what's happening here? Or have I got a cancer growth here? Because your brain is just all over the place. Um, but then when you keep remembering, remembering things that psychologists have told you, you're going to get that pain because it's this brain sending this message. It's nothing. Just keep going. But when I started running, I was pretty much going to Daniel Hospital every three days. Pretty much something was happening. I'd go there just to calm down. They'd put me on all the graphs and say, no, you're completely fine. It's just your, your mental issues. And then I'd go home saying, OK, so I know when that pain comes, it's not related. So it was a long thing. But once you've conquered it and you understand the body and that those pains are actually mostly related to what your brain's messages are, you sort of overcome it. And that's why I've kept at the top of the sport. I've never let myself slip down again. And yeah, but getting back in sport is 100% the key thing. But starting slow. And do you, does it rear its head again for you at all nowadays? It, yes. Probably if I drink too much alcohol the next day. Yeah. Um, then I can get some serious depression and thoughts start coming back and I feel sad about certain events and I get very yeah. scared with things. So alcohol's the biggest one. I try and avoid big mm -hmm. boozy nights. You know, I'll go out with the family and have a glass of wine or two beers, but that's probably about it. Mm -hmm. So that's the only time. <sighs> yeah, not, not, not even the stressful situations like when I've been in countries now, like dealing with like the president of Liberia or certain countries. Yeah, big stressful situations, stressful meetings, but nothing doesn't even, mm -hmm. doesn't even pop up. I know I totally believe in that the body remembers you know it's like uh, yes Irish, yeah. is that, that saying our issues are in our tissues you know yeah and something happens that 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 feeling's got to go somewhere and where are our feelings are they in our heads our hearts our, our bodies it's like literally yeah. the cells of our body that yeah. we put away and, and, until it comes out mm. and things can be delayed yes so. well that's why I make sure I've got my routine I'm not stuck in a super strict routine but I'm have got a routine that I, I do get upset if I don't train every single day 
so I'll make sure if I've missed a day the second day then I'll go and really train harder so that's what sort of keeps me on track it's just knowing because I'm worried of falling back because I have marine friends who have fallen back we've had marine friends who have hung themselves who are fine when you meet them one week and the second week then they've hung themselves and they've got a mother and a kid so yeah so I do just try and make sure that I'm on the right path and I don't do anything I don't want to do so even if I've got a meeting over in Washington I'll say to them okay I'm coming over but just for a one hour meeting when I come over I like to train so I'll come there for three days so I can go and run in the parks in Washington and I'd like to see a sport event so now I've changed my life and I guess we are in the position to do that because we're not now reliant on money we've changed it around and I've made sure I'm not reliant on money so I can say I can come but I want to be there for three days so I can go for runs in the park and I can go and watch a sport event because they're things that I enjoy We'll be back with that in just a moment as the owner of Pure Organic CBD, I can honestly tell you that if you're looking to buy CBD oil, whether it be for pain, sleep, anxiety, mood, emotional support, or even maybe just for your pet, there is no better product out there than our CBD at pureorganiccbd.com. Everything comes from Switzerland. It's all handmade. It's lab tested by professionals. And right now we're giving a discount for our podcast listeners for 20% off. Just use coupon code 20 podcast at pureorganiccbd.com at checkout and you'll receive a 20% first-time discount. Anyways, back to the show. So when you're dealing with this level of heads of governments, do you use Zoom like the rest of us to to avoid that travelling and would that help you in any way? We do use Zoom, but not with any, not heads. Politicians, I don't think I've done single Zoom with any politicians. <laughs> You've got to go there and see that. that. Yeah, no one wants to be recorded over a Zoom call. Right. Yeah, oh, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, you've got to be very careful on Zoom calls. But I do do a lot of Zoom calls with Washington, but they're more the private sector that are doing the embassy work in Africa and stuff for them. So those are fine, but none of us put the vid- turn the video on. Yes. <laughs> Just voice. No, so, um, yeah, I have a sister. Um, she has really bad anxiety, yeah. really bad. She suffered with it most of her life. Um, and she went down the medication route um, so I don't know what they were prescribing her, but I do remember um, turning up to the house one night and um, she tried to come off that medication and she was completely stressed. Um, it happened later to me in my life. Um, something was making me very anxious to the point I couldn't even speak anymore. Yeah. Um, people would just be talking and I might as well have been standing in a soundproof tunnel. Um, and I just think of that um, and I still don't know to this day how I overcame that. I think um, my friends, my family were like, everything's going to be fine. It's fine. And I, I always found that that doesn't help, that that brings no value. It's yes. all in your mind. Have you yeah. experienced that? Yeah, yeah no, it is, it is a tricky one. And But the main thing with coming off this medication, you're always going to have withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's the killer. And I always say to some of my marine friends, they say, well, what do you, because I was on citalopram. And it was when I was in London that I decided, no, actually, I'm going to come off that and just do the natural stuff. Whereas before I was mixing them both. Mm-hmm. So you do get those three, four days, which are hardcore extra stress and anxiety. But the thing is to be around people and do stuff. It's like go running, go sightseeing, keep the brain busy so it doesn't think of anything while you just get over those few days. Do you think, Richard, that when you say you're marine friends, and it sounds like a lot of a lot of them suffer from PTSD, what percentage of guys that go over there and you know have to perform things and see these atrocities and stuff, what percentage have PTSD? Is it, are there many that get away with it? You know, without getting PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Well, my best marine friend, he's probably one of the only ones that didn't have PTSD, and he was with me in Afghanistan, right in the thick of it. 
um so and he didn't get it but then most of them do get it in some way and it might not even just be what we call ptsd it could just be a depression a sign of depression just because of they've lost that camaraderie ship they're trying to find their ways in life you know in the marines you're off to norway to canada afghanistan you're doing all these cool travels adventure training with a group of guys who are your closest friends and then you leave and you're into society and it's like no one really cares what you are you've had this big ego you've been the best in the world and now all of a sudden you just got to get on with it and some people will respect you but a lot of people won't won't even know what you've done and it's overcoming that and I think to date still more Marines have died in the UK than in Iraq or Afghanistan and in the war zone really wow yeah. it's like men always have to have significance I think more we all want significance but I think yes. men more than others need some sort of significance I think so yeah Yeah. I'd agree with that cool. we, we, we you know um, back home where I'm from the USA we had a big I mean there was World War Two, you know and there was a baby boom after life seemed great you know um, and then Vietnam happened after Vietnam, the aftermath of that, you would see a lot of homeless ex-military around, you, you know, and you see these classic images of like, we'll work for food and, you know, people drinking on the streets with their military coats on. And people didn't know how to digest that. You know, we were coming off this baby boom thing and we thought, ah, you know what, they're just, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts. That's their problem. You know, they don't know how to integrate back in. Um, fast forward to Iraq war, um, the first one and then the second one. Um, Afghanistan and all these operations and then it became apparent to the country that wait a second you know this is not those individuals this is a problem here um, so now it's really cool to kind of see the focus being shifted towards like this is an issue we want to help fix it and they're not just exploring this medical you know medicinal route they're exploring all different routes um, especially holistic stuff you know like meditation in this do you practice any of that? Um, do you try to meditate or is it more? No, just it is something sport? that I've always been told to do the medication because I'm always on the go and always mm -hmm. doing. Um, but no, it is something I'd like to add, but I don't think I'm needing to add it yet. So I'll always keep it there thinking, well, if something happens down the line and I need to readdress how I'm feeling, mm -hmm. I'd like to know that there's still options there. I don't want to do all my options now and then not have anything. Sure. So how is it for you, Richard, now that you're, you're married and you've got two small children? How is it kind of back to society? Do you, do you miss that, that, that charge or that excitement of, well, you still fly all over the place to help people, but that, that other side of being the, the Marine? No, well, I've made sure that when I've set up companies or conservation companies or anything to do with humanitarian aid, I've done it with people around and it's people I want to be around yeah. so when I'm going and doing these things I'm not alone so it is I've got my own team that we have our own camaraderie and we do our own things together so, so tell us more what do you do for conservation so we've got quite a few things on the go um, one of them that me and the wife love to do is looking after the turtles off the east coast of Africa and down all the way down to South Africa so we're doing that we'll be visiting that site this November for our third year and we're just trying to grow on that uh, we also do a lot of work with Wildlife Act. They're the biggest conservationists in Southern Africa on the ground. So we're helping them raise funds and helping them with projects like uh, reintegration of vultures that have uh, gone missing and wild dog, cheetah projects. So we're doing all of that. And then I'm sort of doing a, an advisory role for the anti-poaching world. And that's through a few different countries, a few different national parks. Um, so we've got a call with like Kenya on Friday just to see what they're up to and where we can help with that. And we do all this for free. So all that advisory stuff and wherever we help is all for free. And we're also just trying to get all these NGOs rely on donations. So we're sort of saying, look, don't just rely on donations. People are getting bored of donating £3 a month for a leopard and just giving money away. Let's create something. So we're creating this big new platform called Africa Wildlife Art. We've got 
80 of the largest artists in the world from 200 pounds up to 50,000 pounds pieces of art and they're all donating 50% of those sales to conservation so we're pretty much hopefully going to get this set up in the next three four months and then that will fund conservation hopefully in most of Africa fantastic Richard, yeah, we, we actually met before uh, a couple months back um, when you were putting together a charity to help people suffering from the conflict in Ukraine, um, Valdepop Ukraina, which is located in Spain. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So I was only back in Spain. I think it was about a week. We'd just been over in South Africa and we got back and this was all kicking off. Uh, no refugees were, were leaving Ukraine yet and the war hadn't kicked off. So I approached a few of the mayors who I know from playing football with and said, if something does happen, do you have the ability to take refugees? Because we could set something up like a safe zone where, because I have contacts in the Ukraine, we can sort of get them out of the Ukraine into Poland. We've got volunteers there. They can house them and then we can bring them down, put them into like a scheme where the parents, well, everyone goes into a house. The kids go to school, to sports clubs. We find them jobs. We teach them Spanish, like a full close the loop circle to refugee safe zone. And they loved it. So I got all 11 mayors to sign on and say let's do this so that's pretty much how we created it then so we bought in to date oof, I'd probably say we bought in close to 50 families close to 200 Ukrainians so far it's incredible yeah um, yeah I remember all that going on here a lot of people scream big ideas especially in the US you guys were talking about it and then boom next week you guys were in Poland getting people pulling them into Spain it was just incredible yes. the speed and lightning I know um, from your background with the security company, a lot of that um, training and everything came into play as well. Yes, well, we caught in a lot of the contacts. The first people we actually got out, because we used to train a lot of the Ukrainian uh, military guys. So I've been to Kiev close to 20 times. So we called on contacts already saying, right, well, let's create this corridor. Let's just get these people out. So the first 20 people were actually people that I'd worked with or had worked for my security company in certain countries in Africa. Mm. So that gave us the sort of the blueprint, right, it's worked with them. Now we can open it to other people, friends, relatives, more vulnerable people. And that's sort of the role we sort of took. Um, well, we were one of the first in Europe bringing people here. We found out from governmental level in Spain that we could bring them in before they were even given the residency status the years before anyone knew we were shuttling people in here legally. Your, your life story is just incredible and I wish we had more time. <laughs> yeah, I look up to you as an inspiration, uh, as a fellow sufferer of PTSD, just no, the things that you've done. Uh, yeah, really inspire me um, to break through uh, my personal issues. So, uh, you know, and I hope it inspires our, our listeners too. Uh, we're on a, a certain part of the show where we ask our guests a couple of questions just uh, out of the blue. Yeah, far um, away. Yeah, one of them, I really want to know, who are your biggest heroes and why? Oh, my biggest hero is Serrano Fiennes. He's the biggest. He's probably, well, I think the Guinness Book of Records declared him as the best explorer in the world, living explorer. So, yeah, I love him just because of the way he's gone about doing stuff. Now it's very easy for us to go and do an expedition or do some exploration because it's easy to get funding and it's so easy to travel. But he was just before all of that happened. So he spent years and years, him and his wife, just trying to raise funds to do these projects. And they, those things took years for him to do, from Everest to the poles, from everything. Um, so, yeah, definitely him. And what, what are you most proud of achieving in your life? Most oh. proud of achieving? Uh, probably getting over the PTSD is probably the one thing I tap myself on the shoulders every morning when I say no it's another day and I'm still happy and it's, it's keeping on top of happiness it's not trying to find happiness or buy happiness a lot of people can get sucked into buying that big car buying that big house as a way of buying happiness we've just tried to say no I can drive around in a Kia or a Mini or whatever and still be happy but it's how you find that so I listen to podcasts every evening I go to bed I'm listening to podcasts see what new ways are there 
to have happiness without having to buy it. So we live a lot of where we all our stuff is basically things we do. And that's why with our money, we will always treat people to come with us. We'd rather spend it on people coming with us than us buying something nicer. How's it for you being being a dad of two young kids? No, horrendous. <laughs> worse than the Marines, <laughs> worse than training, <laughs> worse than PTSD, no. Um, it's getting easier now because we've got the one-year-old, she's starting nursery, so at least it gives us some time to, t- to train and the wife not kill me when I'm off training. So, And she's desperate to get back into training. So pretty much from tomorrow, she's going to start training as we get settled in. As I say, we've only been in Spain now for eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So we've always had the house here and we've travelled between Scotland, South Africa and Spain, but now we've decided to settle, so we've just got a bit of routine. Uh, Richard, again, uh, thank you so much from, from Fran and myself. Uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today uh, about your life story, PTSD and all that. There's some really valuable bits there um, you know, for people to, to keep doing the good no, part. Thank you, Fran and Rob. Cheers. Thanks for listening to This World is Mental. This episode's proudly sponsored by Pure Organic CBD. Go to pureorganiccbd.com Use promotional code 20podcast for 20% off your first order. You can follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned here for more episodes. Thanks for listening.